of Isaiah. And we'll turn back to chapter 44 before we get into chapter 45 this morning. Chapters 42 through 45 are some of, just some of the deepest and most profound passages in Scripture when it comes to God's prophecies and God's uh, dealing with his people. We see that uh, through this passage that God is talking to the, uh, the children of Israel and he's telling them that a nation that has not even come to prominence yet is going to conquer them and bring them into exile, and yet they are going to be returned to the to the land. And this is before they are ever even conquered in the first place. And then we see with that, he even is going to name the person who is going to that he is going to uh, uh, who he's going to ordain over two hundred years ahead of time. He already names him and tells us that he is going to be the one that he's going to place in his heart to allow the children of Israel to return to the land, set up the temple, and actually that he's going to subsidize them doing so. It's just amazing. Uh, this passage uh, is one of the reasons that Isaiah is attacked so much. And people want to say, okay, the first 39 chapters uh, have to, uh, okay, that was Isaiah. But there was another person who, you know, somewhere right before the Lord Jesus Christ came along, he was the one who recorded the rest. No, Isaiah wrote the whole thing. And we see that the, the great uh, inspiration of Scripture, that how that it was fulfilled in the detail, even to the name of people that God would use to uh, to work and to even chasten as well as to as, as, as well as to rescue his people and Gentiles at that. And so as we looked at chapter 42, we saw that uh, the Bible tells us, if you go back to chapter uh, 42, verse 1, Blessed is the servant, um, my elect one, whom my soul enlightened. Excuse me, 43. 43, I'm sorry. Chapter 43. But now thus saith the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, uh, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. So I know your name. God knows your name too. Is, do, you have a name, uh, do you have a name written down in heaven in glory? I hope you do. He says, and by the way, he knew your name before the foundation of the world. Now, don't try to ask me to explain that in the next 30 seconds. I can't do it. I can't even explain it if you gave me 30 years. But at the same time, uh, God knew your name before the foundation of the world. I called you by your name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And he talks about this. And of course, it even alludes to the three Hebrew children. We see where the fire, you won't even, uh, your clothes won't even be singed. And of course, that was a, that was a picture of what the Lord was going to do even with uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And he goes through this chapter. In chapter 43, he mentions what he will do 36 times. I, 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 I am the Lord. I am your maker. I am your redeemer. And so we see that uh, he, and the one thing that, uh, notice he says in verse 10 of chapter 43, he says, you are my witnesses. Just like with the church, God saves us, not by works of righteousness. He, it is him that saves us, but also we are his witnesses. 
in this present world. Verse 11 of chapter 43, he says, I, even I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no other. And one thing he emphasizes in all three of these chapters is that I am the Lord. I am the creator. I am your maker. If, if you ever wonder what God thinks about creation, just read chapters 43 through 45 of the book of Isaiah and you see that God says, I was the one who created you. I was the one who formed you. I was the one who made you. I am the one who created the heavens and the earth. And he goes, just he emphasizes it over and over again, as opposed to these people who were constantly going into idolatry. And he talks about that in chapter 42 and 40, uh, 43 and 44. And he's talking about, you know, uh, which of you, why are you? And he goes on, he talks about, why do you make these idols? And you'll make an idol out of wood and you'll burn half the wood and you'll make an idol out of another and you'll worship and you'll fall down and worship the thing you made. And he says, There's, I'm the Lord thy God. There is no other. He says, I am the rock. In verse 40, in the chapter 43, 44, verse 8, he says, uh, he says, do not fear to be afraid. Haven't I not told you from the, from the time to declare it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Is it? Uh, indeed, there is no other rock. I, I know not one. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. Folks, there's no other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby men must be saved. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus. Anything else is an idol. Anything else is a false god. Anything that you're depending on to get to heaven, it's a false faith. And so he is saying, and he is drilling this into the people time and time again. In verse 10 of 44, he says, Who would form a God or mold an image uh, that profits him nothing? And he goes on, he tells you, in verse 12, he says, The blacksmith with his tongs works side uh, with coals and fashions hammers and all these things. And then he falls down and worships these things. He says, how silly are you people doing this? How can you do this when you have the one true God that brought you and made you who you are. Notice in verse um, 18, though, this is where he, he gets to the point where Israel has gone past the point of no return as far as in their present state. And this is where he says, they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. This goes back to chapter 1 of, the, of Isaiah, where he says, Isaiah, I'm sending you to people that are so, so far gone that they can't see and they can't understand. Now, there's going to be a remnant out there, and that's one of the things you'll notice all through there. There will be those who will come to know you. That's the reason you preach. And we know in the last days that the love of many shall wax cold. In the, in the days of Noah, how many people in the days of Noah were saved? Eight out of how many million people were on the earth at the time? And so we see that God, will, but God left himself with, uh, will never leave himself without a witness. And even and we know that Peter tells us that, uh, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he preached to, to the people, even when he was building that ark. And here we see that Isaiah is preaching to these people and they are worshiping these idols and he becomes very unpopular just like uh, Jeremiah did. It has been, uh, uh, tradition tells us that Isaiah was put into a tree trunk and sewn asunder. I mean, he sewed him right in two with, uh, with the tree trunk. And so uh, because they hated the guy and his message. 
Well, the, many of the, uh, that's why the Bible tells us that uh, the Lord says, so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. And these people weren't very popular. And so we see that he's preaching to these people and they're not listening. Down in verse 24, uh, 21, he says, remember, O Jacob in Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. Notice he goes back through that again. I formed you and you are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten by me. I uh, have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions. He says, I promised Abraham your great granddaddy that through you and through, that through him that the whole world would be blessed and the Messiah is, is going to come through him and through the, your bloodline even though I might have to do away with you. And so in that present generation, he was going to be, he's dealing with these people. In verse 24, he says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer. Remember, I am the one who created you, I formed you, I redeemed you. He says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, and I formed you from the, uh, the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Does that sound like the Lord says he's the creator? All through scripture, you'll see that uh, God says he's the creator. And that's one reason today that we have people, you'll get in trouble if you go to a school today in a public school in America today and say that God created all things because our education system is turned away from our creator. And as a result of that, they have no foundation. And that's the reason, the, I mean, all the philosophical thing and the craziness that's coming out of these Ivy League schools of any, any university these days is so so inane is because of because they don't have a foundation and of course that is they don't have a moral compass which is God their creator and so he goes on he, he talks about he just keeps on drilling this that I'm the creator and why are you make creating something to worship besides me but then in verse 26 it becomes very intriguing in one of the most phenomenal passages in all the bible our friend uh, Dominic loves this passage, and he'll mention Cyrus a lot. Uh, about, but this, this is a passage where it says, um, Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, You are to be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah that you shall be built? Notice, uh, I'm going to rebuild the cities. Wait a minute, they haven't they've been destroyed yet. And he says, I'm going to rebuild them. And ultimately, we know the last days that God is going to ultimately rebuild the temple. Is he not? <laughs> he's going to, or he's going to reestablish his temple. And so this is always pointing toward the, the millennium. The end result is the millennium and that millennial temple where the, where the, the capital of the world is going to be Jerusalem. And all the nations of the world are going to come worship the Lord there in the capital of the world. And so this is all pointing to that. And so anytime you read something and it doesn't, why, I don't know if that's happened before or not. Just think, okay, and if it hasn't happened, it will happen. But now think of this in the context of, um, of Jefferson and Adams, our second and third president. Uh, they became political enemies uh, whenever they were running against each other, whenever Jefferson defeated Adams as presidential uh, campaign. But after both of them were president, they, uh, they started writing letters back and forth to one another, and they became good friends again. And it was interesting, uh, one of the phenomenal things of history 
is both of them were passing away on July the 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after the first 4th of July, the Declaration of Independence, whom, who both of them had a great deal of influence on writing of that instrument. And so both of them died on that day, 50 years exactly, the 4th of July, 1826. Now think about that. If old Adams was a prophet like Isaiah, he says, you know, in 1948, that's going to be uh, 2000, I mean, that's going to be 220 years, whatever, 20 something, 22 years later. Uh, there's going to be a man named Truman, and he's going to, uh, he's going to uh, recognize Israel as a nation. And not only that, he's going to subsidize them and help them become a nation. Uh, do you think that we would say, my, oh, uh, Adams was a pretty smart guy, would you not? Well, this is exactly what Isaiah is doing 220 years in advance. He is not, he's going to name the person who's not, a, I mean, the nation hasn't even been destroyed yet, and yet he's telling them they're going to be destroyed, and yet they're going to be brought back. And so, and he's going to name the people who's going to do it. And he gives some great details about the man that can be backed up by at least three different uh, uh, people that are historians uh, that, um, that I've read. One is a, a man named Herodotus, who was a Greek uh, historian, and he followed Alexander the Great around, and he knew a lot about uh, uh, these things. Uh, also, there was a, another Greek historian named Xenophon, and uh, then, of course, a Jewish historian that I've mentioned several times, Josephus. And they all mention this man and what a great military leader he was and one of the great phenomenons of his day, and that was a man named Cyrus. And he did exactly what, uh, and in fact, they kind of fill in some of the blanks that uh, the Bible leaves out. And so we'll get into that in just a moment. But uh, notice in chapter, he says, who's going to confirm all this? And who's going to raise her up out of the waste places? Um, and then he goes into verse 27. He says, um, who says to the deep, be dry? And who will dry up the rivers? Uh, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armors of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates shall be not be shut. I will go before him and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of the secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, I am the Lord of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no other God besides me. I will gird you, through, though you have not known me, that you may know that from the rising of the sun to the setting, 
There is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I am peace and uh, I, I make peace and create evil. The, word, the King James says evil there. That really throws a lot of people. Um, the word is calamity. I mean, yeah, he creates calamity, but he doesn't, God is not the author of evil. Uh, the word evil there is used like I, I win, you lose. And so if you lose, uh, that's bad for you. Uh, I wouldn't say it's evil for you unless, you know, there was, uh, you were evil. But uh, uh, the, the word there is calamity or bad things. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so here we see that God lays this out. And I, I originally intended or I, and to uh, name this message, God's letter to Cyrus. Because he lays it all out about, and, and what uh, uh, Herodotus tells us that happens is that during, if you remember Daniel chapter 5, what happens in Daniel chapter 5? Remember a guy named Belshazzar. And he had a great feast. And at the feast, he uh, brought in the, the treasures of Israel. And he set them up and they drank wine out of them. And then what happened? There were handwriting on the wall. Remember? The fingers of God's hand. And may now, may now take a little first. And then, boy, it just scared. And, and his knees actually shook. I mean, they knocked together. And so uh, it scared him to pieces. And, of course, uh, now his mother. Now, if you remember, Daniel was promoted to the third man in the kingdom. Well, what happened was uh, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Belshazzar, uh, daddy was really the capital was the uh, was the king of um, of Babylon or about the Babylonian uh, empire at the time uh, his name was Nebuchadnezzar he left his son uh, Belshazzar there who was a playboy and uh, he was the one who really uh, had the big feast there and really didn't even realize what was happening around him and so uh, Babylon we see that he talks about the walls and so forth. And that, uh, he says that the, thus said the Lord, the anointed, uh, that the, uh, you're the, uh, with your, my right hand, you shall subdue the nations. Now back in verse 27, he says, you shall dry up the waters, back in chapter 44. But we know he subdued 36 nations, according to, again, Xenophon. I mean, the guy was a good, but the thing that made him such a tremendous he did it so many times like he did with Babylon. He did it bloodlessly. He had ways of, of capturing things or going under. He just he even did that with his own father-in-law who, when he took over uh, the kingdom of the Medes, uh, it was a bloodless coup. He just had a way of winning battles without losing a lot of men. He was just a, just a tremendous... Uh, uh, man, and this is one thing that even Alexander the Great looked at reading uh, this and said, my, this guy, he knew how to fight. He, Alexander the Great studied him through, of course, the other historians. But what happened was that uh, Belshazzar was having a big old feast in there. And uh, he didn't even realize that uh, we, these walls of, of Babylon were, were you know, over 100 feet high. And they were so thick that you could run chariot races around them. Who was going to break through there? And the river ran through it, and the gates went right down into the river. And, uh, and it was totally impregnated. Double gates. 
So if you broke through the outer wall, you still had to go through the bronze great gates in sight. Well, what Nebuchadnezzar, what, uh, I'm sorry, what uh, Cyrus did is that there was a swamp off a little, a few miles upstream. He just diverted the water into the swamp. And it lowered the water level so that all his men had to do was march under those walls. But there were still those double walls. Guess what? Nebuchadnezzar, I keep wanting to call him Nebuchadnezzar, but that was his granddaddy. But uh, uh, Belshazzar was such a playboy and so irresponsible, he left those doors unlocked. And so they just marched. And uh, they, the historians tell us that uh, many of the people in Babylon, it was such a big city, didn't even know that the Persians, uh, the Medes and Persians had taken over to about three or four days later. I mean, that was how bloodless it was and how lack of, the only people that really knew was poor old Belshazzar. He was going to die that night, remember? The Lord says, this night, you're dead. And so we see that, uh, and then we see all these things that happened, just like God said was going to happen. He says to Cyrus, you're going to do these things. He says, uh, one of the things that really throws people, he's the anointed. The only time in Scripture where God anoints a, and of course, the word anointed carries with the word almost a messianic feel to it. And yet God puts him in that high position as saying, you're going to be the one who both is going to deliver my people. You're my shepherd. You're my anointed. He says, and I'm going to name you. 250 years before he was ever even thought of. I mean, is that not prophecy? Uh, Isaiah uh, was living 150 years before Cyrus was ever even born. And he's writing this all down. And he says, the Lord is going to hold your hand. You're going to subdue nations. You're going to loose the, the armor of kings and so forth uh, to open before him the double doors, the very double doors of, of Babylon. He's going to open them up uh, so that the gates will not be shut. And uh, who put it in uh, Belshazzar's mind not to lock the gates? God. Just amazing. He says all this ahead of time. Uh, he says, I will go before you. I will make the crooked places straight. Uh, the, the whole idea of uh, uh, giving you a red carpet to, to go ahead. I will break the pieces of the gates in bronze. I will cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness. One of the things that Babylon was known for and Belshazzar uh, knew from his, uh, uh, from his uh, granddaddy Nebuchadnezzar was that, um, that, that they had some deep pits and, or deep banks or whatever, or, or storehouses where they, the gold and the silver, and all, it was a very rich state. A rich city. In fact, uh, it's been estimated that Cyrus took over 35 tons of gold from his conquest, and much of it was from Babylon. 35 tons of gold. How much you'd like? To, how'd you like to have that? Besides all the temple treasures and everything else, the guy was extremely intelligent, and he knew how to plunder. Once he got in there, he knew it didn't matter where they, it was hid. He found it, and so he found the gold and the treasures. And that's one reason later on, centuries later, that, uh, that uh, Alexander the Great wanted to con conquer Persia because they had all the gold. And so again, 
We see in the, the, all the hidden riches, the secret riches, that they may know that I'm the Lord. I call you by name. So we see that, uh, that now in chapter 45, you're going to see I, I. Not only 39 times in chapter 43, 40, uh, it's going to be 36 times, 39 times as he's talking to Cyrus. I will do this. I will do this. And so we see that uh, uh, Cyrus is going to be a conqueror, and yet uh, we see that he's going to be used of God. Uh, and then it, there again, Herodotus tells us that when the Cyrus did take over the city, and of course, remember, I, uh, by this time, uh, Daniel had been promoted to the third man in the kingdom. In other words, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was already gone. Uh, Belshazzar was dead. And so he's the one who walks out to meet Cyrus. And uh, Herodotus tells us that he brings the book of Isaiah with him and lets him read this passage. And, I, and Cyrus, you can imagine, a man who uh, worships the god Mar Marduk, and uh, there's a god in uh, that whole system, that uh, the god of light and the god of darkness and all these different gods. And yet... Here we see that God says to him, I am Jehovah, I am Jehovah. He just keeps on telling him, I am Jehovah. And so I am the one who delivered you. I am the one who gave it to you. And, and, and he says, uh, uh, Daniel, I don't know exactly how you do it, but he said, uh, oh, by the way, this is one of our prophets. And he, he lived uh, 200 years ago, and he named you by name. Well, how would, how, what would you think of if somebody came up to you and said that and showed you something 200 years ago, and tell exactly how you're going to conquer the city. I mean, this was phenomenal. And so we see that uh, uh, Josephus tells us that Daniel approached uh, uh, Cyrus uh, with this passage. And then do you have that uh, Cyrus cylinder that you can flash up on the screen for our people? Uh, Evelyn, uh, is she here? Do you? If the, but uh, this Cyrus cylinder is uh, that's what they would do many times with um, the kings. They would, they would write their history on a cylinder like this, and this would be part of the archives. And they would throw that. Remember uh, later on, Ahasuerus, he went to the archives to read things, you know, with, with Esther. Well, this is the way they would record a lot of things. Well, on that cylinder is something that is written two times in the book of Second Kings, or excuse me, Second Chronicles, the very end chapter, and the first chapter of, of, of the book of Ezra. And if you want to turn back with me to that, we see in the book of Ezra, we see that uh, in the very last verse of the book of Second Chronicles, it says, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kings of the earth, the Lord God, that is phenomenal, because he says, the Lord Jehovah, God Almighty, not Marduk, not my gods, but the Lord God of heaven has given to me and he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May the, may the Lord Jehovah, his God, be with him and let him go up. And so I am going to designate, because of what I have read, 
that this, the God of Israel, Jehovah, not Marduk, not my God, <coughs> is going to, I am commanded by him <coughs> to, to let the people go back to Israel and not only rebuild the city, but rebuild the temple to their God. Now, and that's written down on that stone. I love history. I love to, uh, the, the Bible didn't happen in a vacuum. It was part of the world, just like Israel's part of the world today. It's not a vacuum. And so he wrote all that down and it's even preserved for us today. I love the inspiration of the Bible. And so I see that whatever God says is always true. Now, in saying that, we see that uh, he, he was able to get the hidden treasures and so forth. But notice um, Cyrus is God's instrument. And he says over and over again, Cyrus, in my right hand, I will go before you. In verse 3, he says, I, the Lord, will call you by your name. In verse 4 and 5, he says, I have named you, though you have not known me. He says that twice. I named you and you didn't even, and you haven't known me. Can you imagine being a pagan king and, uh, and being named by the Lord 200 years before you ever even do anything? You can, that must have been very astounding. I mean, I think he slept on that a couple of nights, don't you? <clears throat> and so he says, I, even though you don't know me, I know you. And he says that twice for emphasis. Whenever the uh, Hebrew uh, says something twice like that, like verily, verily, that's truly, truly, that means you can count on it. And so um, he says I have, I, that you, you haven't known me. And I notice I'm the one who forms light. I am the one who creates darkness. This is going against his very God of Marduk, who had the God of light and the God of dark, darkness. I am, I am the light of the world, of course, the Lord Jesus said. I am the one who created it. And so the Lord is preaching and the letter to Cyrus is that I'm the God. Many people believe that Cyrus even got saved. I, I, let the, I hope he is. I don't want anybody to go to hell. So I hope he, he's in heaven. I'd like to talk with him, wouldn't you? I'd like to find out about his military genius of just being a loving history and all that. How did he do all that and uh, build an empire? And by the way, he was a Mede, which is today are the present-day Kurds. And uh, he united the, the Medes and the Persians, which is modern-day Iran. And he defeated the Chaldeans, which were the Babylonians, which is now Iraq. So it's all, you know, all that area is still over there. Uh, today and yet it hasn't had the significance that it had back then but we see that he says I form the light I create the darkness I make peace and I create I mean I'm the one who causes people to fall apart and earlier uh, actually he says it in this passage where he says that uh, uh, I even allow the charge the broken men uh, the shards of clay that's uh, sinful men I even let them fight each other so broken men fight broken people. And so um, he, he talks about that um, as he goes on. Now in chapter 45, verse 8 then, we see that he talks about how that idolatry again is condemned not only with uh, Cyrus, but with, with Israel also. He says, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let the righteous spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. 
I am the one who made the heavens. You guys want to study the stars and make gods out of the stars? I made those things. Why do you have rain? You have your rain gods and your uh, fertility gods and your uh, Baal was a crop god and all these different things that you worship to bring forth. I'm the one who created all this. Then notice he says, woe unto him. There's two woes here. And when God says woe, he means woe. <laughs> but he says, woe to him that strives with his maker. Uh, let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. The broken potsherd was a, or the, uh, the shards of clay. He says, um, let them fight together. What does it do? And you, uh, man, you fight, you fight with people. What good is it outside the will of God? Uh, or shall your handiwork say he has no hand? So there again, there are those who, uh, you make things. Can your idol say that it was made without somebody making it with hands? So, in other words, uh, can we say today that nobody fashioned us and made us? Or was there a God in heaven who created, designed, and produced us? There's a God in heaven. And all you have to do is look at an eyeball and study the eyeball and realize there's a whole lot of intricacy there that no evolution could have ever evolved to make it. And so the whole idea of evolution is uh, there's no God, so we've got to explain how we get here. How silly it is. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, can that idol say that it was made without hands? Absolutely not. And then one that really struck me as I was reading this, and read it in verse 10, he says, Woe to him that says to his father, what are you begetting? I mean, why am I here? What are you begetting? And to the woman, why have you brought me forth? And so why, how can a child turn and say, why did you even let me be born? And, and being born, then why can I determine what I am, want to be? I am a man. I want to be a woman. Sounds silly, doesn't it? And that's exactly what he's saying. Woe to a person who's that silly. It's just like a man who says, uh, we're here without anybody making us. And yet all through the Bible, God says, I'm your creator, I'm your maker. And there's no God besides me. And so all through the Bible, you're going to run up against a God who made you. And if you deny him, you're doing it to your own peril. With the vanity of your mind. Woe to him who strives with his maker and tries to deny even that God made him. In verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, his maker, Ask me things to come concerning my sons, concerning the works of my hands, and commend me. I made the earth and created man on it. Can that be any clearer? Now he's right. He's, I wonder, and I've tried to, I'm thinking that this whole chapter was written to Cyrus. Not just the first seven or eight verses. But he goes on, he says, I, my hands stretched out the heavens and all that the, their host I have commanded. So who made the stars? The Lord. I raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my, ex my exiles go free. 
uh, not for the price or, nor reward. He's not going to. He's not even. He's going to do it out of the kindness of his heart, not because he's going to get rewarded for it. And this is exactly what the thing says, or the Cyrus cylinder says. You know, I'm letting them go back. They're free to go, and I'll even help them. I'll build the temple. I'll help them build the temple, because this is something that was written that I'm supposed to do. And there, Jehovah God, uh, he sounds like the real guy, you know, or the real person. And so he says, and then we see also that he talks about the ultimate fate of Israel. And he very quickly, we just, uh, I've looked and I've, I've studied this and I've even gone back and there's several older preachers that I wanted to hear what, how they preach. And now that you can find a lot of them on the internet, it was good to hear a lot of them. And one guy I really liked, I said, man, this is good. I want to really use a lot of his material. But he preached an hour and a half on chapter 45. Folks, we are not through there yet. <laughs> I mean, if I do that, we'll go to uh, uh, 12 o'clock. So I can't do that. But it's just amazing all the stuff that's in here about what God's done. And he says, uh, the labor of Egypt. He goes on, he talks about, uh, he says, uh, in the end of that verse, he says, they will make supplication, or the, the people of the world are going to come together. Now this, in verse 20, excuse me, in verse, uh, uh, in this verse 14, we see here, these, this is talking about something that hasn't happened yet. People from Egypt and Cush and the Sabians, which were very fierce warriors up now where, uh, southern Russia or Uzbekistan and all those places are today. Uh, they were good horsemen and fierce warriors. Uh, they're going to come, come from all over. And they're going to, they're even going to come in chains. And many of them are going to be conquered. And they shall bow down to you and make supplication to you. And surely God is with you. And there is no other. There is no other God. No, he's not talking about Cyrus here. He's talking about Israel. And God's going to bring the nations of the world under his subjection. Now, truly, you are God who had yourself. Notice in verse 15, O God of Israel, your Savior, they shall be ashamed. Now, God is hiding himself even today from Israel because they have rejected him. They're blind and cannot see. Now, are there Jews saved? Yes, there's the remnant again. But as a whole, the nation of Israel has not turned back to God and won't until the tribulation period happens. But notice in verse 17, the God, but Israel shall be saved by the Lord. God cannot let Israel go. Folks, there's a modern American theology that the church has replaced Israel and now we are the ones that God is going to... No, God cannot replace Israel with anybody because Israel was promised directly that he that they would that's their that's their land and the Messiah is going to come and he's going to rule from Jerusalem through them. And so they are God's anointed people. The church is just a parenthesis and and we are not Israel. And the bad thing about that is people who adopt that then they say okay we can, we don't even have to support Israel today. Folks, we better God says he'll bless those who bless them and curse them who curse them. And there's a whole uh, movement in America today to abandon Israel. Oh, but when we abandon Israel, we're going to be in trouble with God. Now, does that mean that I agree with everything that Menachem Begin? Oh, no, not him, but uh, let's see. Netanyahu, <laughs> Begin is older. But uh, they're going to do it. No. 
Do I agree with every Jew? We got Jewish politicians in America that I abhor as far as politicians, but I am not going to say that they need to be thrown in, into concentration camps. Or do I want to burn their buildings or their synagogues? That is not, I want to bless them. I want to get them saved. Amen? And so uh, even though I abhor their politics, many of their politics, many of them have turned to seeing the light as far as politics is concerned and turning from those ways. But at the same time, they are God's people. And we owe it to God to bless them. Amen? I hope you see what I'm saying here. I, we get into a whole political situation there. I don't want to other than the fact that I support the Jew. I want to see them saved. Because they are God, this is a promise that God's given to them. And I do not replace the Jew, and neither do you. God has his own special plan for them. I, hey, listen, uh, I'm ready to, uh, I'm, I'm going to support what God supports. And he's say, telling he's going to come back for the church pretty soon. I want to go up to heaven pretty quickly, don't you? And let God deal with Israel as he wants to. But notice in verse 18, he says, For thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens and earth. Notice he gets back to this over and over again. He says, goes on, he says, uh, Who is uh, God who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not, uh, who did not create it in vain, for, uh, but who formed it to be inhabited? So the Lord knew what he was doing when he put man on earth. There are people that are saying that we need, we got too many people. We need to kill them today. <laughs> Isn't that silly? Just all the crazy things we're having with environmentalists today and everything else. The world can hold all the population that God would allow to come. And we don't need abortion. We don't need uh, infanticide or what all the rest, genocide or anything else to take care of the world's population. And by the way, uh, global warming is not going to destroy the inhabitants of the world because God says he made the world and he created it. So we don't have to worry about that. There again, uh, I can't preach for an hour and a half, so I'll move on from there. But uh, that's just something I think about. But, um, <clears throat> but he goes on, he, he says, for I have spoken in secret, and in the dark, but I'm revealing it. And so then very quickly, we see God always gives the invitation. And it's an invitation after saying, oh, this, I created it. And, and anybody who turns from it has got problems. Assemble yourselves together. Draw together. Think about this. Escape. You escape. And, and he goes on, he says, uh, those who have no knowledge, who carry the wood of the card of image, pray to the, uh, go ahead and pray to that God that cannot save. Why do you pray to that God who can't save? Why do you pray to that false uh, uh, religion who can't do anything for you? Tell and bring forth your case. Come on, let's reason together, folks, saith the Lord. Back again to, re to uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 1. That's why the reason I call it the gospel of Isaiah Let's reason together about this. Uh, you, let's all get together. Let's talk about these idols. Let's talk about these false gods you have. Let's talk about all these things that uh, are destroying you. Let's reason. Can any of it save you? And then he says to them, uh, and he says, who has declared this uh, from ancient time? And who has told it from that, from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. 
a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Folks, there is no inclusion in Christianity. Either you are saved or you're not. It's not that, oh, we call it, some people call him Buddha and some people call him Confucius, but we call him Jesus. No, there's none other heaven, none other name given among men whereby men must be saved. And that's the name Jesus. And Jesus means Jehovah is God. And so there's none besides me. Look to me and be saved. <clears throat> All the ends of the earth. Folks, look and live. Look unto me and be saved. And this is a verse that back in 1850, a little 12-year-old boy on a wintry day in north of London walked, he was going to church and he had a crowd down to about our size, maybe a little bigger. And he went into a church, uh, into a little old, uh, primitive Methodist church. That's uh, when we get into all the different types of Methodists. But he went in and the preacher wasn't there because the snowstorm had kept him away. And there was a deacon that got up and he had to, they were going to do something, so they had people there. So he turned to his Bible and he read this, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And the little 12-year-old boy is sitting back there and it hit him like a thundercloud, a thunderclap. And he realized this is what he was missing. He had been going to church and he'd been in and out with his parents and everything, but he needed something. And he realized that he needed the Lord Jesus. And that's the day that he said that he was saved by the Lord. And a little church out in the middle of nowhere by, and by a man who really didn't even know how to preach, but he just got up and said, look unto, look unto me and be saved. And God saved him that day. That man was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who preached a thousand. He's considered the greatest preacher that the, the English language has ever produced. All because anybody can be saved wherever you are when you hear that message. And we see all the answers, for I the Lord and there is no other. And I have sworn to myself that the word will not go out of my mouth and will go out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return from me void, uh, that to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess or take an oath. Now where do we see that? Philippians chapter 2. There's coming a day when every knee shall bow, and every knee shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so look and be saved. Either you bow to him today, or one day you will bow to him. One day, everybody, all those who have rejected him, will bow before him. You can do it today, or you can do it later. But if you do it later, you're going to be standing before the wrong throne. And he's going to say to you, what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Even though I knew you by name, <coughs> I didn't, your name wasn't written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so this is the whole gospel of Isaiah. Look unto me and be saved. I am your creator. I am the one who made you. Come to me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will direct your paths. I know you by name. 
but let your name be written in the Lamb's book of life. All ye, and even that all ye lands to the ends of the earth, oh, that the Lord would use this church to reach people in Belvedere and to reach people to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we would come before your presence with singing and into your presence with joy. Oh, Father, we pray that you can speak to our hearts. May your word go forth powerfully. May it not return void, but may you use it. May you use our lips to preach it. May you use our actions to, to show it that, Lord, the ends of the earth will know you. Father, may, Be- may Belvedere, many boys and girls that are growing up uh, much like a little 12-year-old boy back in 1850 that are desperately searching, may they find the truth of the Word of God that will change their lives and change many around them because of the power of your Word and what you can do through it. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.